a resumption of our series on the prophet Zephaniah. You'll notice from the outline that we're going to pick up where we left off in chapter 1, verse 14, and we'll be covering verses 14 to 16 this evening, uh, working very laboriously over this unit of the prophet's work, uh, because it is quite spectacular in terms of its poetic and rhetorical force. Uh, Having said that, um, I will admit that it may be a little challenging for you, so I plead with you to stop me and uh, ask me to clarify or explain or expand as the case may be. Uh, I'll be happy to uh, go even more slowly if necessary. Um, because we will be looking at uh, some of the Hebrew patterns here. Uh, We're going to begin with the Dies Irae, which you'll notice is at the top of your outline on the first page. And uh, do I have any Latin scholars here who can translate Dies Irae uh, for me? Go ahead, Pete. Day of wrath. You can see the English word ire in there. Of course, ire is anger. <clears throat> so, dies is the Latin word for day, and ire is the word for wrath. It's in the genitive, so of wrath. And this is the Latin version of <clears throat> verse 15a. <clears throat> it comes from the uh, Vulgate, uh, translated by Jerome in the 5th century from the Greek te- Hebrew and Greek text into Latin, and that whole first line, which begins dies irae, continues dies ila. So dies irae, dies ilia, which means day of wrath is this day or that day. So this uh, famous line uh, <clears throat> carries over into medieval poetry. It carries over into classical music composition. And uh, let's take a moment to listen to that line, the Dies Irae, Dies Ilia, as it's sung with a few additional lines from the most famous Dies Irae, namely the Requiem of Giuseppe Verdi. <clears throat> the Dies Irae was repeated several times there. I don't know whether you could pick it out or not. <clears throat> But if you couldn't, you see from your outline, you can go on your computer and YouTube the live performance of what was recorded on that CD. Uh, Claudio Abbado, the late Claudio Abbado, great Italian conductor, uh, playing with the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra and Chorus. And you can see the, that uh, D.A.C. Ray performance and hear it once again. I well remember uh, my first exposure to that music when my mother's favorite Italian director, Arturo Toscanini, recorded that Verdi Requiem. <clears throat> and it was uh, one of the most unforgettable human moments in my life. I can still remember my first hearing of it. Toscanini's version was so hair-raising of that piece, so violent It was as if the day of God's wrath was already crashing down with every beat of that bass drum. 
And if you go on to the YouTube version that I've listed there, you'll actually see the bass drummer uh, <clears throat> working out on his instrument with this, as you could have heard it, uh, pounding away. And, of course, the point of it is the pounding of God's cl uh, clanging wrath as it's coming to expression in his judgment. So this version, as I mentioned, that uh, we played uh, over the loudspeaker there, was uh, recorded by the late Claudio Abbado as uh, another Italian conductor, along with Toscanini, because uh, Italians do their countryman Giuseppe Verdi the very best, even as Italian tenors and basses sing Verdi the very best. <laughs> and it's available on CD uh, if you have any interest in actually owning a copy of it. Well, as I mentioned, our challenge tonight is to uh, understand what Zephaniah is doing. We've heard a little bit of the impact of this verse, particularly verse 15a, on uh, music and on culture. Uh, the lines, uh, D.A.C. Ray, are quoted in a medieval poem. And it's attributed to a fellow called Thomas Colenso as uh, the scholarly debate as to whether he's really the author of it. But anyway, it arises in the Middle Ages as a part of the Requiem Mass, and so it becomes incorporated into the Roman Catholic liturgy as a part of the Requiem Mass, and it pops up in Mozart's Requiem, Berlioz's Requiem, Dvorak's Requiem, and there's Verdi's Requiem virtually every requiem uh, which is composed musically includes this dies irae. All right, now, um, what about this uh, text? What about the passage itself? What about the book of Zephaniah? This is divine revelation. So let's uh, situate it on the uh, line of history. When was this revelation delivered? Date Zephaniah for me. Yes, it's all right. You can look back on your notes from last year. Ben, are you... Uh, you Very good. And why do you say between 640 and 609 B.C.? That's the reign of King Josiah. And how do you know this comes from the time of Josiah? From the first verse. Very good. So in the superscription of the book, we have a date, and we can date Josiah very accurately to 640-609. So this is a 7th century B.C. prophet. Are there other contemporary 7th century B.C. prophets who stand alongside Zephaniah? And if so, who are they? Jeremiah is a contemporary of Zephaniah. Do they seem to know one another, do you think, Kay? When I read, uh, he could have known Jeremiah. Zephaniah could have known Jeremiah. What would you say as you read the, the, the Zephaniah that would suggest Jeremiah? Uh, he, he's he's uh, thinking about Jeremiah. Or Jeremiah may be influencing him. What's this day of wrath going to be? Meaning what? Uh, when, uh, when Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And what's the date of that event? Very good. So both of them are talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. There's certainly that resemblance in 
their books, uh, they're, they're both featuring this uh, <coughs> descent of God's judgment upon a disobedient nation of Judah and Jerusalem. All right, so uh, we've had Jeremiah as a contemporary 7th century B.C. prophet. Anyone else prophesying in the 7th century might be a contemporary of Jeremiah and Zephaniah. Nahum is. Okay. What's peculiar about Nahum? He is a 7th century B.C. prophet. How do you know he's a 7th century B.C. prophet, Scott? What's his book about? Do you remember what his book's about? Here you are, a seminary professor. I'm asking you, what is the content of... Give me in one sentence the content of the book of Nahum. Every Christian ought to be able to say what the content of the book of Nahum is. Peter, what's the content of the book of Nahum? No, no, not that Peter. We've got two Peters. We'll have to say Peter the Elder and Peter the Lesser or something. (laughs) Magnus and Minius. Minimus. Minimus. <laughs> Not the destruction of Jerusalem. That's what's peculiar about Nahum. Go ahead, Kay. It's about Nineveh. He's a 7th century B.C. prophet, but he's not particularly focused on Jerusalem and Judah, which you would think for a 7th century B.C. prophet, although he indirectly is, because what's he saying about Nineveh? And incidentally, where is Nineveh today? Name Nineveh's name. Give me Nineveh's name today. That's a country. It's on the coast of the Mediterranean. No, it's not. It's not. What's that? Turkey. Is somewhere in Turkey? No. Mosul. Oh, yeah. I'm surprised you don't know that. I just heard about that. Didn't you see in August when ISIS blew up Nebi Yunus? That minaret that they blew up? That mosque that they blew up that had the minaret? What was that mosque? That was the tomb of the prophet Jonah. That's the Islamic tradition that that's where Jonah was buried. And ISIS blew it up because it was an idol. And so they destroyed it. Mosul. It was on your TV screen. It was on your news. For the last two months, you've been reading about Mosul and Kirkuk and Turkit and so on and so forth. And there is Nahum prophesying about Nineveh, which was destroyed by the Babylonians. In what year? 610? Close. I'll give you a B plus. Thank you. Anybody want to get an A minus? 612. 612. Go to the head of the class. Okay. So, Nahum is a 7th century B.C. prophet, but he's focused on the destruction of Nineveh, which is the destruction of what? Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It is the end of the Assyrian Empire. It is a transition to the Babylonian Empire, the rise of Babylon. All right. That, of course, is important to the history of Jerusalem and Judah. And in fact, Josiah benefits in part from that destruction, actually the decline leading to the destruction in 612. 
Anybody else 7th century B.C. prophet? Here we have three, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Nahum. Not Jonah. He is 8th century B.C. Habakkuk, yes. Habakkuk is also a 7th century B.C. prophet because he too is prophesying about the coming of the Babylonians, as he says in the first chapter. All right, so we have four 7th century B.C. prophets and Zephaniah takes his place in the rank of this uh, <clears throat> of these four inspired uh, servants of the Lord. Now, with respect to the section we're looking at, now we're paying attention to verses 14 to 16 this evening. <clears throat> there is a Leitwerter. Can anyone define that German word Leitwerter for me? Lead word, keyword, keyword, okay? So write it down there so that you remember it. So the next time I put it on your outline, you'll know what it is. It's keyword, and as you scan verses 14 to 16, what's the keyword that jumps out at you as you glance down? The word day. Very good. So we have the light verter of the section. It is the word day. And now we're going to learn a little bit of Hebrew. <clears throat> And remember that you read Hebrew from right to left. So we're going to start with what's in parenthesis there. And we're going to start with the word that begins with the yod, or the small little jot on the right-hand side. And the pronunciation of that word in Hebrew is yom. And the second word is the tetragrammaton. The tetragrammaton is the name for Lord. And it is pronounced by canons of acceptance today, Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-H. So if you want to transliterate or spell out that in English characters or in, uh, in, in, in our language, you would write Yom Yahweh, which means Day of the Lord. So that's how you say Dies, uh, <coughs> uh, Dies, uh, uh, <coughs> Uh, Dies Dominus in, uh, Latin, in uh, Hebrew. All right, now this is the light motif. That is, this is the thematic motif or the thematic key to this section. You not only see the word day as you scan down verses 14 to 16, but you see day of the Lord, which appears in that section. It appears in verse 14. And it also appears earlier in verse 7 of Zephaniah 1. All right, so we have a key word, day, and we have a key theme, the day of the Lord, the Yom Yahweh. All right, now, let's take a look at your English version. And as you uh, examine that English version from verses 15 to 16a, okay, excluding verse 14 now, from verse 15 to 16a, what jumps out at you? What do you see there? Disaster. Disaster, okay. I'm looking at things which seem to repeat themselves. Every line starts with a day. Yes, every line starts with day. Very good. And how many times does that occur, Ben? Six times. Six times. So day, the word day, yom, in Hebrew, the word day occurs six times in this section. And what part of speech is the word day? 
If you're in English grammar class, what part of speech is day? Noun. It is a noun. Okay, so we want to remember that. Okay, <clears throat> so day occurs six times and day is a noun. Now, what else do you see occurring there frequently in verse 15 through 16a? Besides the word day, mm, okay, that's fine. Anything else? What? And. Very good. And. So, uh, we already identified day six times. How many times does the word day appear, uh, does the word and appear? 15 to 16a. Five times. Very good. And what part of speech is the word and? It is a conjunction. Very good. It joins together two phrases or clauses. All right. So, we have a pattern of repetition with respect to the initial word, the initial noun in all of these lines, the word day, and we have a pattern of a repetitive, repeated conjunction, the word and. <clears throat> Thus, a pattern of duplication, a pattern of symmetry, a pattern of recursion, a pattern of repetition. Now, as you think about that, would you say that that's intentional? Would you say that Zephaniah planned it that way? Yes. You're observing a characteristic of his style here, and actually this is poetic style, because much of the Hebrew prophets is actually written in poetic Hebrew poetic idiom. All right, so... Obviously, then, because of these key repetitive themes, this recursive pattern, Zephaniah has designed this section, he has crafted this section, he has intended this recursion for a particular purpose. He's done it not only for poetic purposes, he's done it not only for rhetorical purposes, he's done it for literary purposes. He has crafted it unto a particular purpose which he is driving home. All right, so we've come to the realization that we have how many clauses or lines which begin with what recurrent word? Day is the, day is the word, it is the blank after with. How many clauses begin with day? We have six. But in your English version, as Ben pointed out when he commented on this, uh, what do you have before the word day in your English version? A. The word a, okay? The word a or a. Now, what kind of part of speech is the word a? It is an indefinite, not a pronoun. The pronoun is you, me, okay. article. But it is an indefinite article as contrasted to what? Definite. The definite article, which is what? The, okay. So... Hebrew has no indefinite article. It does have a definite article. There is a letter for the word the. It does not appear in the beginning of any of these six clauses. We therefore know that this is an indefinite day of the Lord. Now, we may be able to define it somewhat as we go on in our discussion, but nonetheless, grammatically, 
There is no letter, there is no word for A in Hebrew, and thus the English translators have inserted what is appropriate to the fact that there is no definite article before Yom here. Not Hayom, but Yom, standing alone. Not the day, but a day. All right. Now, six clauses, all beginning with the same initial Hebrew word. The word for day in Hebrew, Yom. Is there any other famous chapter in the Bible which has a recurrent initial pattern of words or phrase found in successive verses? Sermon on the Mount. And what would you be thinking of, Randy? Blessed are the poor. Very good. Okay, so there's a chapter. What chapter is that? Chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And the Sermon on the Mount has this recurrent or recursive pattern of blessed. Uh, you were smiling there, Kay. I was thinking of Genesis 1. Genesis 1. Well, they're, they're not at the beginning. Okay? So we're looking at something that occurs at the beginning of a clause. Because God said, and then it was so. Yes. It comes, it comes, tends to come at the end. Okay? Any other famous chapter in the Bible that begins and repeats the same line as it unfolds? One of the Psalms, like 106, 107, 105, around that area. I'm thinking of something a little more familiar to you where you don't have to guess at it. Psalm 136. Psalm 136. What's the recursion there? Endures forever. It comes at the end, okay? Yeah. And so it's not at the beginning. I'm, I'm thinking of some, uh, something where it begins the clause, begins the line. All right, how about Hebrews 11? What's the recursive line? Faith. By faith, by faith, by faith. All right, <clears throat> now there's another passage uh, <clears throat> that we can look at, uh, which you should recall from our study of Jude. So if you'll turn to Jude which is, of course, just before the book of Revelation. Turn to the end of your Bible and go back one book. And look at verse 17. And then look again also at verse 20. Verse 17 begins how? Anybody read it out? Keep going. But you must remember. Okay, you've left something out, or perhaps that's your inferior version. Beloved. Go ahead. Beloved. But you beloved. Very good. And verse 20, read it out. But you beloved. But you beloved. Okay, once again, we have Jude using a pattern, a literary pattern, in which he begins two successive units of his letter. And in fact, 17 to 19 is a unit of this letter. 20 to 23 is a unit of this letter. It's a rhetorical unit. And he marks it by beginning it the same way. But you, beloved, but you, beloved. So we have a a number of examples in the Bible, including what we're looking at here tonight with Zephaniah, of the biblical writer using a repetitive pattern. 
a repetitive pattern which inaugurates or begins a verse or a clause. What do we call that? What's the name for bringing back that same initial word or phrase? You told us last week. Yes, I told you. When we were doing the Epistle of Jude, I told you. <clears throat> I introduced you to this literary theory. <clears throat> I was encouraging you to think that these writers are also skilled craftsmen. They are skilled in literary style. So what do we call this? <clears throat> this is anaphora. Anaphora. A-N-A-P-H-O-R-A. It comes from the Greek word which means to bring back. <clears throat> Literally to bring back the same clause, the same phrase, the same word, and to repeat it. To keep spiraling it. It's a recursive, repetitive pattern. And it's a pattern, as you saw in Jude, which indeed indicates the bifurcation of the epistle in terms of units of his rhetorical appeal. So, it's a marker. It's a way to see how the piece of literature is put together, how it's assembled. It's a transition device. It's a repetitive transition device. You see that in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith. Noah, by faith, by faith, Abel, by faith, Enoch, by faith, Noah. Those are all discrete narrative units reflecting upon the career of those individuals for whom the author is successively unfolding the drama of their story and their faith in the promise of God. Go ahead, Bob. How about the first John words? I write to you, I write to you, dear children, fathers, young men. And repeat your children, fathers. I'd have to look at that, okay? But it, he says, I write to you over and over. Starting in verse 12. And you said what? First John 2. Then to just preach on this last week or the week before. Okay, I see it in verse 1. Uh, where, where do you see it? Verse 12. Okay, uh, yes, yes, very good. Another in Africa. All right, now, you can see this in your English translation. It jumps out at you in that 15th verse particularly. So, Zephaniah is a skilled craftsman. It takes creativity and intentionality to do this. He's doing it in order to draw us into the drama of the imagery, the drama of the image of the day of the Lord. <clears throat> it's almost like the beat of Verdi's bass drum in his Requiem. You heard that bass drum thundering as you listened to that choral section of the Dies Irae. <clears throat> brings your attention, it startles you, it shakes you. In fact, it raises the hair on the back of your neck, particularly if it's Toscanini's version. <laughs> so, here's this day, 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 like the beat of a drum, like the cadence of God's marching to judgment, like the crashing of God's wrath upon a disobedient nation. Verity catches the sense of it very well which is the reason I think it's the greatest musical expression of the Dies Irae. 
We can argue about that. But nonetheless, you heard it, and you were struck by it as you listened to that emphatic bass punctuation. All right, so you can see that here in your English translation. What you cannot see is even more of Zephaniah's craftsmanship here, his literary and rhetorical artistry as recorded in the Hebrew text, which flowed from his inspired pen. So on the second page of our outline, we're going to begin to address a deeper aspect of Zephaniah's inspired literary and rhetorical style. Now, you will notice at the top of the page, there are three Hebrew words stacked on top of one another. Uh, These are the Hebrew words for verse 15b and 15c of Zephaniah 1. So the first line, if you wanted to look at what it means in your English version, is 15b. That is, is the second line of Zephaniah 1.15. That second line of Hebrew is the third line of Zephaniah 1.15, so Zephaniah 15c. Now you'll notice, once again, I remind you that you read Hebrew from right to left. You'll notice that you've seen that word on the right, which is the same in the first line and the second line of Hebrew that I printed there. It's the same. You've seen it before. You saw it on page one of your outline. And now that you've learned what it means, how would you pronounce it? Yum. Yum. Very good. And it means what? What's the English translation? Day. Okay. So we have day at the beginning of these two lines. As we indicated when we talked about the fact that there are six clauses in this sequence that begin with that same Hebrew word yom. So here you see two of them lined up uh, underneath one another. All right, now, those words in the first line, which are translated trouble and distress in the New American Standard, so yom, and the second word, sarah, is translated trouble, and the umesukah is translated distress. Now, you notice I put a little line under that funny little letter that begins that third word. It looks like an upside-down hockey stick. You see that? You see the little line underneath it? Okay, that upside-down hockey stick is the conjunction and. It's a preformative in Hebrew. They add it to the front end of a word. So that means and distress. Now in the second line, once again, you have the word yom again, which means day. And shoah, umesh shoah, is destruction and desolation. All right, so if you want to kind of write over the top of what those words means, day, trouble, Distress on the first line as you go from right to left. Second uh, uh, line, day, destruction, and desolation. And you'll notice that the and, the upside-down hockey stick, appears in exactly the same place in the second line as it does in the third. It's at the beginning of the third word in the sequence. All right, so what part of speech is the word trouble and distress? What part of speech? What part of speech is yom? It is a noun. What part of speech is trouble? 
It's a noun. Very good. What part of speech is distress? It's another noun. All right, so we have a pattern, don't we? We have noun, noun, bunk, and noun. What's the bunk? We have noun, noun, and then we have the underlined upside-down hoppy stick, and, which is a conjunction. Okay, we have noun, noun, conjunction, and noun again. Okay, very good. Same thing in the second line, don't we? We have noun, noun, we have upside-down hockey stick, conjunction, and then noun. How many lines of this do we have in verse 15? Look at your English version. We have five if we count 16a. Very good. So we have five lines of... Noun plus noun plus and plus noun. Five lines of anaphora with exactly the same grammatical construction in Hebrew. The same pattern. Noun plus noun plus conjunction plus noun. Five times the exact same pattern. And the first noun is day, recurrent in exactly the same anaphorically manner, followed by two more nouns separated by the conjunction and. All right, so five lines constructed in exactly the same way, precisely the same grammatical way, no variation. But we'll go back up to the top and we'll read the line again. And as I indicated, this is Hebrew poetry. You'll listen for what makes it poetic. Listen and see if you can hear it. First line, top of the page. Yom Sarah Umeh Sukkah. Second line, Yom Shoah Umeh Shoah. Do you hear anything? Yom Sarah Umeh Sukkah. No, it's not particularly a rhyme, although we'll point out a little later that there is something there that sounds precisely alike, although it's not not. Rhyming scheme. A cadence. Very good, Randy. Cadence. There's a beat. There's a rhythm to it. Yes, there is. Now, how much of a cadence did you hear? I'll say it again. In fact, I'll say both lines again. Listen. Listen for the cadence. How much of a cadence? Yom Sarah Umesukah. Yom Shoah Umeh Shoah. Three, four. Three, four. <laughs> Add them up. Seven. Yes. Okay. Did you hear the seven beats? Yom Sarah. Okay. We got three so far. <laughs> My fingers don't work as well. <laughs> Um, meh, show, ah. 
seven beats. Okay? Umesuka, I should say. Okay, Yom Shoah, Um Mes Shoah. Each line of the five has this precise seven beat cadence. Not one deviation. Five lines of perfect symmetry grammatically and five lines of perfect cadence rhythmically. You try that. You try that. This Hebrew is magnificent. The style, the literary drama and creativity of Zephaniah is absolutely astounding here. This is amazing by comparison with other amazing literary accomplishments in the Old Testament, particularly Psalm 119. All right, now, as we step back from this, we realize that we not only have a literary genius, we have a literary genius who has poetic rhythm or poetic cadence built into his style, and particularly here, at one of the pinnacle points of his book, he is driving it home. He's driving it home in terms of its symmetrical regularity. He's driving it home in terms of its, re- its percussive repetition. He's driving it home in terms of its beat and its, its, its rhythmic cadence. All right, so in our summary, we have... Symmetrical lines of anaphora, all of which have the same, how many beats? Seven beat cadence. The last five lines of which, that is verses 15b to 16a, have the same, how many Hebrew noun format? Three Hebrew noun format. The second and third noun separated by the conjunction and. But we're not done with this master. As we also look at uh, rhythm and cadence, we note something else. There are other literary or rhetorical patterns in this little section. There is alliteration. The word yom appears six times. And alliteration is the initial first letter being repeated over and over again. It is the alliterative yod in yom, six times. There is an assonantial yod. That is, there is a sound which repeats itself six times. It is the yo in yom, the yod wow holom, pronounced Y long O. And finally, there is another assonantial element in his construction. It is the terminal AH, which is the feminine ending on the end of the noun. You can see it at the end of the first line on the top. It looks like a kind of uh, lopped off H with a hole in the upper left-hand side of it. And it's the same Above and below, it's the Hebrew word hey, 
and the little cross or the little T, which is below the word, below the letter before it, is the vowel A. Ah. Notice what you heard. Umeh Sukkah. Umeh Shoah. You hear the ah repeating itself assonantially seven times in this Hebrew section. All right, so we have literary and rhetorical anaphoric recursion. We have alliterative uh, identification of initial letter. We have a sound at the beginning of each clause which repeats itself. Yo, 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 yo. And it doesn't mean what street guys think about yo, 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 yo. And we also, yeah, you didn't think I knew any of street lingo, did you? Okay. That's my other life. Okay, and then we have the terminal feminine ending, ah, 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 which repeats itself sound-wise as we go through these, uh, six, these six lines. <clears throat> okay, you step back from this with the realization that you're not dealing with a primitive amateur. You're dealing with an inspired genius. You're dealing with someone who was learned in the Hebrew idiom. He's not a wild, frenzied, uh, uh, wild, banshee prophet, as the liberals portray many of the Old Testament prophets. He's a very literate and learned son of the prophets in the school of the prophets and in the school of the Holy Spirit. All right. The neglect of Zephaniah means that this has been neglected. It means that this penetration of his heart being shown in the idiom that he uses, his dramatic power being shown in the way he recursively or repetitively drives that imagery home, his heart is on display here. So we have the inner mind and soul of this prophet who is dramatically displaying God's march to judgment. Is he, with Jeremiah weeping, as he beholds this, as he contemplates this, we are not told. But after our break, we'll come back to talk about other aspects of this uh, with respect to the force of his imagery. Do you have any questions before we stretch our legs? Okay, two things. In that second line at the top of the page, Yom Shoah. Does anyone know what Shoah means today? In Hebrew? In Hebrew. It is the Jewish word, contemporary Jewish word for Pete, uh, uh, art? Yeah. For the Holocaust. There it is. There's the Hebrew word right in front of it. Destruction. Show it.
we come back now to the biblical, theological, or redemptive historical reflections on this marvelous paradigm, because the paradigm is unto the revelation or the message which is contained in it so emphatically, recursively, symmetrically, and repetitively. So in terms of the redemptive historical paradigm, we want to think of how this lines out pan-historically, pan-redemptive historically. So let's look at the tandems. Let's look at the sequence. We have the proximate reflection of this uh, prophecy in what year? Okay? 586. What's the word proximate mean? Close to. Close to. Close by. So, we dated Zephaniah in Josiah's reign. Ben gave us 640 to 609. So, we know that sometime about maybe 30 years or maybe a little more before the destruction of Jerusalem, this prophecy is predicting its eventuality. So, the proximate reference here is to 586 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar's devastation of the temple and the city of David. All right, now what what would be the opposite of proximate? Exact. Remote. Remote, very good, remote. What would be the remote vector or the remote referent here? End of the world. The end of the world. And why do you say that? From within the text of chapter 1. From within the text of this section, which extends from verse 14 to 18. Sounds pretty disastrous to me. What within the passage would suggest that it could extend to the end of the world? In other words, there could be a proximate and remote vector. There could be a redemptive historical reflection. Pardon? Well, then that would be more proximate. Go ahead, Art. A day of trumpet and battle cry? No. You're going to have to go down to verse 18. All the inhabitants of the earth, all of the earth will be devoured. All right, so we have within this section language which refers to the proximate destruction of Jerusalem, 586 B.C., and refers also to the remote destruction of all of the earth and its inhabitants to the second coming of our Lord Jesus, to the parousia of Christ. All right, now, the next category is near. Near is what year? Or what event? It's the same as what's proximate. No. It, yes, it is the great day of the Lord. But what, what's the date of what is near? It's 586 again. Okay? So it's the destruction of Jerusalem is near. Okay? So what's the opposite of near? Far off. Far off is the second coming of the Lord. What is close? 586 B.C., destruction of Jerusalem. What's the opposite of Close. 
We already did far off. We can't have any redundancies here. You have to vary your vocabulary. Distant. distant, far off and distant. Distant is the return of Christ. The judgment that's associated with the return of Christ is still a judgment motif. It's the judgment which will fall on all the earth when he returns. All right, now is what date? 586. What's the opposite of now? Not yet. Thank you, all you Washington's. Very good. The not yet is the return of the Lord in judgment and glorification. Okay, and finally, imminent, which means what? Say it loud. Close or near, okay, imminent. That's 586 B.C. again. And what's the opposite of imminent? Not transcendent. Not transcendent. Scott? What's the dedication line in Boss's Pauline Eschatology? Creator, Redemptor, Consummator. Yes, very good. Okay. Imminent and consummate. The consummation. Consummation of the ages, which is the end of redemptive history. All right, because the text itself contains the language of these dual vectors, we do justice to that duality by noting that it has a both near at hand and far off anticipation. It has a both now and not yet projection. It is there within the passage. I don't know how you get away with it without framing it in this way. And the only solution to framing it that way is the solution which comes with the central glorious prophet of God, namely our God and Savior, our Lord Jesus, who is the fulfillment of this passage, even as he is the anticipation of its consummation. It comes to its fullness in Christ. It comes to its completion in Christ. It even comes near in Christ with respect to the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., which is one reason why he picks up on the motif of the destruction of the city of David and the temple in his Olivet Discourse in 70 A.D., for 70 A.D. So we have these rippling uh, uh, narrative uh, roles and royals of uh, this unfolding paradigm as it unfolds through the history of redemption, But with respect to Zephaniah, these two points of impact, Jerusalem de Lenda, 586 B.C., Jerusalem destroyed, 586 B.C., and Cosmos de Lenda, second coming of Jesus, destruction of the universe. Uh, Randy, go ahead. What's de Lenda? Is that... uh... Yeah, that's a Latin word for uh, Carthago delenda, a famous phrase of Scipio Africanus, Carthage is destroyed. D-E-L-E-N-D-A. D-E-L-E-N-D-A. Sorry to throw that in there, but uh, <clears throat> all educated people ought to know what Scipio Africanus said anyway. So, 
Okay. Now, some miscellaneous things to examine in this passage. We didn't comment on verse 14 much. In fact, we didn't comment it at all, so we've got to go back and redeem ourselves here. You'll notice a recursion or a duplication there. The word near is repeated in verse 14. And since it's repeated in parallel style, it suggests that urgent imminence, which we pointed out in the rest of this unit, in the rest of this unit. So, the divine wrath is near at hand. But then there's that word translated in the New American Standard in the last line, the warrior cries out bitterly in it. Now, some of your versions may have the mighty cry out or the mighty one cries out. So the suggestion has been made by some scholars and commentators that the warrior here is the Lord God. Do your versions not say warrior or mighty one? What's that inferior NIV say? Warrior. It says warrior. <laughs> it got one right. Okay. All right, I'm just I'm seeing if there's any other variation there. So. The mighty man. Uh, yeah, uh, I think that's a little too much because there's no necessary uh, 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 word, Hebrew word for man in the in the uh, in the language. All right. So at any rate, what we have here is an interesting question about the identity of the warrior, and some scholars suggest that it is God, the Lord Himself. Now. They do that because they think that the image of the marching persona behind the day of the Lord is the Lord himself on his day. Okay, I mean, I can live with that. But you'll notice even from your English translation, if you notice the third and fourth line of that 14th verse, listen, the day of the Lord in it. The warrior cries out bitterly. Is there possible support for this explanation that the warrior is the Lord by looking at those two lines? And if so, how would you say, ah, yes, it really does mean the Lord. And it does because of... Why would the Lord be bitter? Good point. Let's hold that on the back burner for a moment. But let's answer the question I put to you, without bitter. As you look at line 3 and line 4 of verse 14, is there anything there that suggests that Lord could be the warrior? The warrior could be the Lord. Art, your head went up. So what comes to mind, this is the day of the Lord, comes to mind there is uh, that the Lord created this day, that he's behind this day, and therefore that the Lord would be in it seems a bit far-fetched. Okay. Anything else? New King James says, there the mighty men shall cry out, plural. Mm. That's even worse than ESV. There is no plural word for men in the text. Reading into the text, eisegesis. 
Yeah, is, is there any justification for these scholars saying, in other words, as you look at the lines, as you look at the two lines, is there any justification that you see in what's on the page in front of you, line C and line D of verse 14, which could justify their suggestion that the Lord is the warrior, the warrior is the Lord? So you're thinking of the human or the warrior that's got the, the sword in his hand and the shield in front of him and his armor on, okay? All right? That's certainly a possibility, but once again, we're going to put it on the back burner. All right? Yeah, angels are spoken of as Quiet. warriors. Quiet, <laughs> So here's an argument that just dreamed up. It says the warrior, the warrior, as if it's, you know, as if. As if it's a definite, yeah. something definite. Okay, all right. Now, the only problem there is that the Hebrew does not have the definite article here. All right, now, you can't see it, but I want you to listen as to describe how these two lines end. You can see it in your English version with line C, the third line in verse 14. The last word on that line is Lord, correct? Even in your English version. In the Hebrew, the last word in that line is Yahweh, the Hebrew word for Lord. Now, line four, 14D. The last word in that line is Gibor. Gibor, which means mighty one or mighty warrior. Ah. Did Zephaniah place the parallelism or the symmetry between the two final words as a ten, as a, as a hint as to who the warrior is. The warrior is the Lord who appears at the end of the previous line and the Gibor is the Yahweh. I like that. But what's the fly in the ointment? Randy. You already said it. Bitter. Yes. What's what's the Lord bitter about? That doesn't seem to apply to the Lord. We can say that the Lord's attribute is mightiness. Yes, he is called a warrior. He is a man of war in the Psalms and in Exodus 15. So there's there's a modicum of accuracy in suggesting that the warrior is God, but what do we do with that word bitter? And that word bitter is mar in Hebrew. Mara. Where have you heard that mara word? Not when he struck the rock, but you're in the right you're in the right period. It's the mosaic period. Bitter waters, yes. The bitter waters, and they threw the the wood into the waters to sweeten them in Exodus 15. Okay, and they called that place Mara, and here's the Hebrew word Mar here. So it seems to suggest human warriors, bitter because of the approaching day of the Lord. Bitter or on edge, bitterness can have that kind of edgy 
aspect to it, <clears throat> bitter because, you know, their, their, their whole world has been shaken up and uh, set on edge. Mary, you had a comment? Yes, I think so. I don't. I don't think it goes that far. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but that's my my opinion. Um, anyway, we we end up with a very fascinating um, sequence here in these two lines, which is suggestive, but not definitive. And so we'll let it rest at that. We've kind of had a way of, we've had an interesting opportunity to think through a proposal which is plausible. Namely, the Lord is the warrior, the warrior is the Lord. But that plausibility flounders slightly on that word bitter, which is in this, which is in this section. Any question about that? Yeah, Scott? Um, I'm just trying to figure out how you were thinking of Yahweh being the last word in lines one and three. Three. No, no, line three and four. Line three. Yeah, call, call, Yom Yahweh. Okay, that's the last, Yahweh is the last word in that three-verse set, the three-word set. And Gibor is the last word in the end of the verse. You're thinking it's the last word in a three-word set, so you're not worried about Mar at the end. After no, that. no. So that, that's Mar is part of that last clause. Right, it's the last word, but you're thinking it's Yahweh, Yahweh is the last word in the three-word set. Is that what you think? Uh, no, Yahweh is the last word of line three, and Gibor is the last line, word of line four. I'm dividing it up into Kola. Okay, if you're thinking of poetic analysis. So, at the end of, or let's say clauses, okay? The, clause, the third clause in verse 14 is, listen to the day of the Lord, Kol Yom Yahweh. Okay? Yahweh is the last word in that clause. No, Mar is, belongs to the next clause. In fact, it's the beginning of the next clause. Okay, bitter there is the sound. Bitter is the sound that is there to the mighty. Literally, I'm, as I'm translating Hebrew as I'm remembering it from from. Uh, sure. No, I, you're looking at it as you as you. Yeah, but mine divides it. Okay, so are you with me? You see, Gibor, Gibor at the end, last, and Yahweh at the end. I get it. Okay. All right, now, verse 16. This verse talks about uh, fortified cities with high corner towers. This is an interesting reflection which in my personal opinion um, lends credibility to the fact that this is a 6th century B.C. document. Now, why do I say that? The excavation of, the archaeological excavation of Judean cities, that is, the cities of Judah, after the destruction of the northern kingdom and the captivity of the ten tribes of Israel, the archaeology of those cities has noticed that all of those cities have walls, at least the ones that have been uncovered so far. So 7th and 8th century B.C. cities of Judah, that would be 600s and 700s B.C. cities of Judah, have rectangular walls 
with towers on their corners. Every corner of the walled city that has been excavated has a tower fortress built into the corner. It seems to be, it seems to be what distinguishes the architecture or the construction of that period. All right, now, notice Second Chronicles 26.15. Second Chronicles 26.15. And when you find it, go ahead and read it out. Second Chronicles 26, verse 15. In Jerusalem, he made machines designated by skillful men to use on the towers and on the corner defenses to shoot arrows and hurl large stones. His fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped until he became powerful. Now in verse 14, we're told who this was. This is Uzziah, king of Jerusalem. What do you know about Uzziah, king of Uzziah? Your head went up at the back of the room. What do you know about his eye? Okay. <laughs> I thought that was a look of all-knowing. Isaiah is the one that tried to offer sacrifice in the temple and was struck with leprosy. The story is at the end of this chapter 26 of Chronicles. All right, King Isaiah reigns from 790 to 740 B.C., plus or minus. So he is an 8th century B.C. king of Judah in Jerusalem. And you'll notice that the text says that he builds these cornered, towered fortresses into the walls of Jerusalem. Matches the pattern of the archaeology of the period. All right. So my point in, in observing this is to note that we have an accurate contemporary rec- ref- recollection or reflection of the style of the building of the walls of Jerusalem in the sixth, in the seventh and eighth century BC. Zephaniah is a seventh century BC prophet. He's an eyewitness. He knows what these walls look like and he is describing them accurately, even as the archaeologist Spade has demonstrated. Now, one more word in that line. The word trumpet there in verse 16. The Hebrews did not have a trumpet, as we think of a trumpet today. Uh, They had a shofar. In fact, that's what the Hebrew word here is. Does anyone know what a shofar is? A horn. It's what kind of a horn? It is a ram's horn. Okay. It was a sounding device made out of the empty horn of a ram. And it was used for calling Israel to uh, assembly, whether to a festival or solemn gathering. And it was also used as a summons for battle. Who uses shofar? Who uses trumpets to sound the battle cry in the Old Testament? Gideon, exactly. Gideon, all of his 300... There's the mighty 300, all of his 300, not at Thermopylae Pass, all of his 300 
they sound the shofar as they rout the Midianites. Okay. All right. So this section then uh, allows us to look at other kinds of imagery uh, derived from other language systems. This is the way you build your vocabulary. So let's take a look at the entire text of this section, verses 15 to 16, in Latin. Now, I'm not going to read it all to you. We began with Latin. Let's end with Latin. And the method to my madness is, as we hear the Latin terminology, we're going to expand the imagery. Okay? This is one reason that if you know other languages, you expand the creativity and the imagery of your vocabulary. It's a very good vocabulary builder. It's a a good way to build vividness of language and expression. So here we're going to see an example of it with Zephaniah chapter 1. Now, in the New American Standard, the the first, the second line of verse 15, 15b, reads, A day of trouble and distress. The Latin is a day of tribulationis et anguistiae. Anguistiae. All right, tribulationis is not hard for you to figure out. Day of tribulation, all right? So we have expanded the imagery with this trouble. It's trouble which is tribulational trouble, okay? All right, what about angustiae? Now, that's a little harder. Anguish, Anguish. very good for you, excellent, yes. It means anguish. So this distress is anguish. Anguish is distress, distress is anguish. It becomes a little more, shall we say, uh, guttural that way. All right, or visceral, I should say. Guttural, no, bad word, visceral. All right, now the next line. A day of destruction and desolation. The Latin, a day of calamitatis et miseriae. Yes, calamitatis, calamity miseriae. Misery, yes, this is a miserable desolation. All right, a day of darkness and gloom. The next line, a tenebrarum, tenebrarum, a tenebrous day. Darkness, yes. Post tenebras looks. The motto of the Reformation in Geneva, post tenebrous looks. Calvin's model, after the darkness, light. Okay. All right, so a day of darkness and gloom, a tenebrous day, and et caliginous. Caliginous. What's what's caliginous fluid? Come on, all you biology majors. All you medical students, what's collagenous fluid? Polluted. Close. It's murky. It's cloudy. Okay. Collagenous. There's a good word for you. Okay. A day of clouds and thick darkness is the next line. This is a nebulae day. Nebulous. Okay. Meaning hazy. At Turbinus. 
No. Turbulent. Close. Turbulent. turbulent. Yes, turbulent day. Stormy, violent, like the turbulence of the winds on a stormy day. A day of trumpet and battle cry, 16a. A day of tube at Clangoris. Tube. It's a day of tubas, right? That's the Latin word for trumpet. You can imagine the Lord's coming with E-flat tubas or sousaphones or whatever you call a tuba these days. He's going to come with more than that. And clangorous. Clangor. The clang of metal. Metal banging against metal. All right, so as you take a look at the vocabulary of the Latin translation of the Hebrew, you see that your imagery is expanded. And your way of describing it vividly has expanded. This is a day of tribulation and tenebrous darkness and collisionous nebulousness. And on you can go to build up the vocabulary, to build up the image of God's coming great day of wrath. But, but we rejoice that that day of wrath has passed over us because of the one who bore it for us. He's already been through it. It's over for him. And because it's over for him, there is no wrath to fall upon those that are joined unto him. That is the sweet other message of Zephaniah. We will not get to it until the antipodal, the antipodal chapter, namely chapter 3. But we will get there. Patience, children. Patience. So I give you a preview. But you already knew that. So in that sweet consolation, that wrath does not distress us. Even that consummate wrath that is destined to come upon the whole cosmos. It does not distress us. Because in believing, belonging, and believing in Jesus Christ, the wrath there is no there is no wrath to those that are in Christ Jesus. Any questions or comments? Yes, Mrs. Dennison. In fourteen, could the warrior be Zephaniah? Could the warrior be Zephaniah? I don't think so. Uh, I think Zephaniah is. Uh, biographically present in verse 12, but I don't think he is present in verse 14. Why? Because he is moved to imagery which is cosmic and metropolitan, beyond himself. Yes, Maureen? Question, or maybe you don't want to answer it, but have you... I exercise the right to veto. Yes, go ahead. When... When was the near fulfillment of this uh, fulfilled? It's 586 BC. Is the near is the near fulfillment? Yes. The, the distant fulfillment is the second coming of Christ. There is a reflection or an echo of it in 70 AD as well. <clears throat> but when we're talking about the the what is in the text, namely what is near, verse 14, and what is coming on all the inhabitants of the earth, <clears throat> we're between the uh, 586 BC and the end of the world. 
They're post-exilic, that is, they come after the uh, destruction of Jerusalem, after the captivity, after the 70 years of uh, Judah going into Babylon, and 539 B.C. is the initial return, but they do not come back until a century later, 454 and 435. See you next week. Let's close with prayer. Father, we are amazed at the genius of your inspired spokesman, and we stand in awe of your spirit working upon the heart and mind and soul of Zephaniah ben Cushi. We thank you, O Lord, that he projects the certain terror of that day which would come upon Judah, not because we're grateful for the destruction, but we're grateful for the accurate prediction of it and the warning that it gives to all of us that unless we be in Christ Jesus, we too will be destroyed on that remote and consummate great day. So deliver us, O Lord, from your wrath to come, even as Paul acknowledged that the Thessalonians have been delivered from the wrath to come by coming to Jesus Christ, who had borne that wrath in their place. So bless us with that same benediction, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.